it's very intimidating um, in, in, in some ways. I hope some of you are as ignorant as I am tonight, because I know some of the people sitting in the front row here are, are some of the most uh, brilliant scholars in, in these fields, uh, and, and I'm not. Um, and uh, what I do are sort of sweeping generalizations, um, and uh, I'm pretty expert at those. So, so that's really what I'm, what I'm going to talk about for the next three hours or so. Um, the, I, I just thought what might be worth doing um, is to, sometimes asking and answering a stupid question uh, is, is quite useful. And the stupid question in a way, and it's particularly stupid here, is, is why do we need museums at all in the 21st century? Uh, I mean, obviously this, this whole complex of buildings is itself a fantastic answer to that question. But if you stand back from it a bit, um, you know, it's worth asking the question, is there a future for museums in a century where all the drift of contemporary culture has been towards the virtual, the online, the digital, when those technologies, and they are fantastic technologies, have made available to us superb images of so many objects. I mean, you can go online and you can, you can look at images of things. Um, and this is really kind of really wonderful democratic development. It's a terrific thing about the idea that we share not just our own national culture, but world culture through, through these images. We live in an age when you know, 3D printers, for example, have got to a point where, if you remember earlier this year, somebody managed to, uh, to print a gun. You know, shocking ideas that you can actually print a working gun from 3D printers. So objects can be made and reproduced in all sorts of, of, of ways that could not have been imaginable even, even 10 or 15 years ago. So the question of the future of museums, I mean, why do we come and gawk at things that just sit there in, in glass cases? What's the point of this anymore? Do, do we actually need museums at all? Do the objects themselves tell us anything that the wonderful technology couldn't tell us? And I suppose I just want to suggest over, over the, the, the next short while um, a couple of reasons why actual physical objects are interesting. Why those of us who value these objects uh, and the scholars and curators who, who present them to us uh, are not the equivalents of the sort of fetishists who spend $20,000 on eBay for some chewing gum that Elvis Presley you know, discarded in 1956. Uh, you know, objects aren't just about that kind of fetishistic association with great people. Um, they do actually have a power which goes beyond that. And so I just want to suggest a couple of, of, of ways of maybe thinking about this. Um, I just need to make sure this technology is working, excuse me. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, wonderful. It's a great relief since we moved. Um, so the first thing I think maybe that objects, real objects, actual things are unique in telling us is something about the exotic and the familiar or the strange and the ordinary. Um, so the first two things I just wanted to have a look at very briefly are this and this. So uh, this, as you can see, is a very exotic object and this is something from a student flat in Watford in 1970, um, and maybe still there. So this first object um, is, 
It's a ceremonial axe head that was found in West Donegal. I mean, you know, really kind of quite remote. And you can't quite see it too well in this image, maybe, uh, but it's a very beautiful object. It's, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary when you look at it because the stone has a kind of green glow to it. Uh, it really does look magical. And it's polished and smoothed and shaped. And you can sort of imagine the way it would feel in your hand, you know, something that would, would really feel like something very, very special. And this was um, probably made as an axe sometime around 4,500 BC. So we're looking at something that's over 6,000 years old. And we're looking at something that ended up in Donegal, maybe around 3,600 BC. Um, when they first found this, they thought it might be Chinese, because it looks like jade. Um, it's actually a stone called jadeite, And it's a hand axe. Now, it's an axe that was never used as an axe. This is Stone Age. But they didn't use this as an axe. This is far too precious for that. This is a ceremonial object. It's an object of incredible, uh, it has an aura about it uh, for the people who, who owned it. And one of the things, one of the reasons why um, you need the object is that this has been around a very, very long time and it's only in the last 10 years that this object has begun to tell us its story. Uh, as technology has developed, what you couldn't get from an image is what you can get from the stone itself. In the last 10 years, they've been able to identify exactly where this stone comes from. You know, the chemical composition of the stone itself can be matched precisely to where it comes from. And where it comes from, this thing that ends up in County Donegal, is the Italian Alps. So this thing was mined sometime around maybe 4,500 BC, very high up in the Italian Alps. We can then actually trace it because it was polished somewhere in Brittany. There was a little factory that polished these things, made them. Uh, and these spread, they're very rare, but there's quite a number of them around you know, Western Europe. I think there's some of them even as far north as Scandinavia, as far south as Spain, and as far west as Donegal, including this one. Um, and one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this object is that it's very beautiful in itself, but it also tells us something that connects us suddenly to people who seem to us very mysterious. We don't know a lot about these people, you know, who had this thing. But one of the things we know about them is actually that when we go to a museum and we look at this thing, what do we think about it? Well, we think it's very exotic and it's very old. And I would suggest they thought exactly the same thing that in 3600 BC, this was already very old. It was already a thousand years old. And it was already incredibly exotic. It had come from the Italian Alps and ended up in Donegal. So the people who had this, uh, we suddenly get a kind of intellectual and emotional and spiritual connection with them. Because we understand that actually their sense of how amazing a strange and exotic and rare object is it's maybe not that different from ours. So within the exotic, there's also the familiar. There's also a connection. You know, there's something that connects us to them. And then here's the familiar object. Um, uh, uh, some of you are my age, um, none of you are older, I can see, but uh, you probably had this kind of stuff um, you know, in, in 
student flats. Uh, you know, it's 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 cheap woven material, organic material. Uh, I, I certainly had a had a mat in 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 uh, uh, my first house that was very like this. Um, this actually isn't a mat. It's it's quite small. It's a basket, kind of woven basket. So it looks extraordinarily familiar. It's the opposite of the first object. Um, but actually, it's as old as the first object. This, this goes back to about 3800 BC. I mean, this thing again is, is, is the best part of 6,000 years old. And it's an incredible survival. This was found in a bog in Twyford, County of Westmeath. And again, what you realize with this is you, that you're suddenly reversing this idea of what's exotic and what's familiar. It looks familiar, and then you realize how old it is, and it becomes itself strange and exotic. And yet, it's also, I think, an incredibly moving object. Um, it, it's not particularly beautiful. It's not rare. It's, it's not one of these magnificent things that was made by uh, an elite of craftspeople. This was almost certainly, I would imagine, made by an ordinary Irish woman. And it was almost certainly used by an ordinary Irish woman to do what? Well, probably to collect nuts and berries. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers, uh, we think of man the hunter, but woman the gatherer actually probably produced a lot more of the food than man the hunter did. Uh, and this was probably, you know, you know, used by an Irish woman about 6,000 years ago. And it's the same kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's made of organic material, weaving stuff together, probably woven by a woman, probably used by a woman. Um, and it, to me, again, in a different way, it sort of connects us with the past. Um, you know, it's, it's familiar, but familiar in a way that's very different from the first object. So this whole dynamic of what we think is familiar to us and what's strange, I th the real objects, make you think about this in ways that just pure images won't. Um, this is one of my favorite objects, and it brings me to my second point, which is that sometimes, as well as being either familiar or strange, sometimes objects are actually mysterious. The real thing is really mysterious. Um, and again, I'm sure some of the great scholars here have theories about this, but. To me, it's an absolutely extraordinary object, and, and I wanted to show it in Waterford for a reason that I'll, I'll, I'll come to. Um, this was found under the great megalithic tomb at, at Mouth. Um, it goes back to, we can't date it precisely, maybe sometime around between 3300 BC and 2800 BC. So it's, it's, it's very, very old. And this is certainly an object that's made by the people who are farming in Ireland. So this, these are farmers, uh, and the, 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 you know, they're, they're a different kind of culture. Um, and when you look at this thing, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, again, it's exotic. You can see the, the colors, the attraction to the stone that's different. You know, this isn't the kind of stuff that you see every day, even apart from the decoration of it. It's a colored piece of flint. Uh, I think the most common belief is that it might have been sourced on the Orkney Islands. So it's, again, it's come from quite far away. But it's been made. And I would suggest that if this was made in Ireland, it's the first great work of art in Irish history. Uh, 
it's the first thing we can find that you can say this is an extraordinary work of art. Um, what do we not know about it? <laughs> well, we don't know, is it meant to be, it's a, it's a mace head, obviously, it's the head of a mace, you know, you can imagine the, the, the shafts would be in the hole here. But again, it's ceremonial, it's not, it's not going to be used to hit somebody over the head with, it's too precious for that. Uh, but what does it mean? Is it, is it anthropomorphic? Is it meant to represent a human head? Uh, it seems to me it probably is meant to represent a human head. It, it looks very like a kind of uh, face and ears and hair and a mouse, of course. Um, but we don't know. We simply don't know what, what, what the people who, who made it thought it was meant to represent. But what we also don't know is how on earth did they make it? Um, I've asked quite a few people, you know, how do they make this thing? And nobody can really tell me because this is flint, it's incredibly hard. And the people who make this only have stone tools. And if you can see this, you can see the, the perfect geometric spirals that are carved into it. Um, and how do you do that with stone? How, how do you, with banging one stone on another, how do you make a patterns like that? Um, and this is why it might relate to Waterford. The, the, one of the most interesting theories I've seen is, is um, that the only way they could have actually made this was with something like people used for engraving Waterford glass. <laughs> you know, that you actually had a wheel and a hard bit and then you could control the way in which you made the patterns of it. But, they're not supposed to have had this technology, so, so, so how can they have made it? Um, it, it? It seems to me, and I'm sure people have different theories about it, but it seems to me to, again, have a sense of mystery, and a sense of mystery that's much more potent when you look at the object itself, its physicality, because you think, you know, this is a hard thing which has been shaped into this, this extraordinary image, and just looking at a photograph of it, or even a three-dimensional, um, digital image of it doesn't give you that sense of its physicality and how mysterious it is. So mystery is the second thing I think that sometimes comes with objects. Um, this is a third thing about objects, um, which is really about um, context. Uh, one of the things you don't get from digital images really in the same way uh, is the idea that for objects to fully tell their stories, you have to know their context. Uh, where were they found? And what was found with them? And this, uh, this pair of, of things, they're called basket earrings, but they may not have been earrings, they were probably, they could have been hair decorations for, for men. Um, they're beautiful golden objects. And what I find fascinating about these is that these are in the National Museum in, in Dublin, um, but they were found in the 19th century, and in the 19th century you found something, it was gold, you dug it up, it was treasure, you, you sold it for as much as you possibly could, um, and the context in which it was found, what was with it, exactly where it was found, a lot of that information just isn't available. We don't know very much about uh, the context of this. So, as luck would have it, these things tell a story which is incredibly interesting because pretty much exactly the same pair of ornaments was found in England. 
and it was found near Stonehenge in a place called Amesbury. And when it was found in Amesbury, uh, it was found with a body. And that body was found with a lot of other objects. Uh, and again, the way that the technology has moved has allowed uh, archaeologists to understand these particular objects um, in an extraordinary way and to understand them as something that actually points us towards something really interesting. And the really interesting thing is we think we're going through historic times, right? But if you look at it in the, over the longer term, really probably the two biggest changes in Ireland are farming, which is Neolithic, uh, and metalworking. You know, the arrival of metals is, a, is an enormous business. Um, and we know farming must have come from the outside because there were not species in Ireland that you could domesticate. We didn't have wild cattle, for example. We didn't have wild sheep, so they had to be brought here by people. Uh, so that tells us that it's a migrant culture we're coming in and bringing this stuff with us. But what we could never really know for certain is what, what about metalworking? Um, where does all the knowledge to make metals, where does that come from? Does it come from the outside or is it developed indigenously? And these little ornaments actually are very suggestive about that because the ones that were found that are almost exactly the same as these in England, found with the body, that body was the body of a metal worker uh, because he had metal working tools buried with him. So we know that this was somebody who worked metals and he had these beautiful golden ornaments. And with the technology, what they've been able to do is to um, do extraordinary stuff, which is using the teeth from the body, they can figure out exactly where this man grew up. Where did he come from? Um, they know that from what he ate and the minerals that got into his teeth. And so the guy in Amesbury who had these things came from the Alps again. He came from South Germany, North Italy, that, that region. Uh, and this is very suggestive, right? It, it suggests that you've got these metal workers. Metal has been developed in Central Europe and they're coming across into England and then into Ireland. Maybe just looking for new sources of, of, of gold, for example, which they find in Ireland. So this is the third thing maybe that actual objects can tell us that images can't, you know, which is that they help to give us a context which in turn tells us something really important about how metalworking came here and suggests that it probably came with migrants. Uh, people came in from Central Europe. I'm not saying they came directly from Central Europe. They made their way maybe over a couple of generations across into Ireland and, and, and found a great deal of, of metal uh, that they could work here. And boy, did they work it. Um, uh, this is um, a fantastic object. Um, uh, it's one of the things in the book, uh, one of the great things about Ireland is that um, people will still tell you you're wrong about stuff. And in the book, I, I, I followed the sort of accepted recorded descriptions of how this was found. It was found in the borough of Canticlare, a place called Glenninchin. And the story that's told in the book is that it was found by a boy out hunting rabbits. Um, but I was walking down the street of Ballyvaughan and a man who's about 83 stopped me and he said, you're wrong about that because I talked to the man who found it in the 1930s 
and actually he wasn't uh, a boy, he was, he was about 18 and he, was, he wasn't hunting rabbits. Um, but he was out and he, he was getting over a stone wall and he knocked the stone and this fell out. Imagine. It was folded over in half and uh, he took it home to his father and his father said, get that out of the house, it's unlucky. You wouldn't know what it is. So they put it in, they, they kept it in the shed for about 10 years um, because they thought it had fallen off a coffin. That was the only way they could understand it. And then eventually, through a number of coincidences, someone who was fairly scholarly happened to be staying in the house and, and they mentioned this thing and he looked at it and it, it ended up in the National Museum. But this itself is a, you know, it's a, it's a fabulous object and, and you, can, you can see um, I suppose this is one of the ways in which you get, you begin to get something that is different about Ireland. You know? uh, so we've, we've talked about all these things coming in, like agriculture and metalworking, but this is not the sort of thing you find in general around the rest of Western Europe at this time. This is from about 800 BC, about 3,000 years old. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about it is that, that it, it, you know, they call it a gorget, it's probably worn by a priest or a king, or maybe the priest and king are the same thing, around the, the breast and the, 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 the neck. And um, what's very interesting about it is that it's, it tells you something really fundamental about the way Irish culture works. And I would suggest the way it still works, right? which is this is both European and Irish. So it's both typical of its time in Western Europe and utterly distinctive at the same time. Um, it, in a lot of Western Europe this time there's a kind of warrior culture, warrior cult, macho display, you know, think of rappers in, uh, you know, um, West LA, you know, showing off your stuff. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. But typically in Europe this kind of thing is made of bronze and it's, it goes all over the warrior's body. It's like a piece of armor. Uh, and it, it goes down to the ribs and around the neck. And it's a big way of showing off that you're an alpha male warrior. Um, in Ireland, they have bronze, but they've also got gold, which most of the Western Europeans at this time don't have in anything like the same quantity. So why would you bother making a thing out of bronze when you can make it out of gold? It's, it's, it's ups the ante, you know, it's, it's a much more prestigious object. But the really interesting thing is if you really look at it, what it does is it, it's, it's like an abstract piece of armor. It's like a piece of armor that's been made into an idea rather than a thing. It, it seems to me, and I'm sure again experts may disagree, but if you look at the, the shapes here, these are the ribs, you know, the ribs of the torso and the thing hanging around the neck. It's a sort of abstracted version of what the European norm is at the time. And this actually becomes something that's very, very typical of the way Irish culture works. It begins to adore abstraction, uh, to love objects that are symbolic rather than real. Now, uh, that's a distinction that you can argue with. Of course, objects are always symbolic to some extent. You know, we, the way we dress, the way we uh, use objects is always tied up with status and prestige and everything symbolic. But in the Irish case, it, it seems to me you get a kind of love of abstraction and symbolism. And it comes 
maybe partly from this thing of having the gold. So obviously you can't, you don't have enough gold that you can make an entire piece of armor out of, out of gold, but you can make a symbolic version of it, which is going to presumably have a lot of religious significance. Um, we assume the main deity for people at this time is the sun, and this looks a lot more like the sun shining than, than a piece of bronze is going to do. You know, it's going to have that kind of aura about it. So the fourth thing, maybe that objects, again, the actual object can tell us um, is, is about power. You know, it's about the idea that uh, th these things have enormous symbolic significance, but also that in Ireland they're beginning to work that, that significance in a particular way, which is to do with a kind of abstraction. One of the very interesting things about this object, and it, it'll come up, it's a word that will come up again, um, is it, it was decommissioned. Um, when, they found, when it was found, it was folded over. And again, the idea, people looking back think probably, when it was put away, it was so powerful, it had to be folded over to decommission it, decommission its power while it was being stored for whatever reason. Uh, so there's actually a kind of a, a crack down the middle of it, which where it was where it was folded. Um, the next thing that objects maybe just tell us sometimes is they can just be astonishingly beautiful in and of themselves. Um, this is quite a rare thing. I mean, in Irish culture, I was talking about how abstract some so much of the stuff is, and this is in one way. It's one of the most real things, you know, it, it, it obviously represents a, an ocean-going or sea-going vessel, a boat. It, it seems to be, and of course we, don't, we can't tell for certain, but it seems to be a very accurate representation of the kind of boat that, that people used in Ireland, you know, and used to, to, uh, to conduct all this trade with Britain and with, with the continent. And you can see here that the oars, you can see the rudder, you can see, I don't know if you can make it out of the image, but the, the benches where the, the rowers sit in the middle of it, and the mast. Um, it's, it's called the Broider Boat, it was again from County Donegal, maybe around 100 BC. Um, it, it, it's interesting in, 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 in two ways, I think. One is that what this was found with, again, the context, uh, is it was found with other gold objects, but the other gold objects are probably from Roman Egypt. So, in a way, the object of what it's found with, it's not just representing trade, it also embodies it, you know. So, you can actually see that this is telling you something about Ireland. It's not this isolated island. The, the ship is an image of connection. And the very fact that you've got um, objects found with this that come from the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, tell you that story as well. Uh, but the second thing I just, I think it just tells us is that there's no substitute for seeing this thing. You know, it, it, it looks extraordinary in photographs and, and 3D images, but it's just a piece of absolutely breathtaking beauty in terms of its delicacy. And in terms of, again, the way that that beauty connects us with the past you can begin to imagine um, something about these people. And what you can imagine about them is that they made, they could, first of all, they could make something as beautiful as this, and secondly, that they could sacrifice it. So, so this was sacrificed at the shore uh, to the sea god. 
<coughs> so it was an offering. So you get both a sense of their pride in their ability to master the sea and their terror of the sea itself, that you have got to sacrifice something as beautiful as this in order to appease the sea god. Um, and again, I would suggest that there's, there's nothing quite like the original object to tell you this. Um, <clears throat> the next thing I just... I would just like to suggest about objects is that sometimes um, objects can be both incredibly distant and incredibly close. Uh, this is a, you actually can't see this in an image. That's one of the great things about it, actually. This is maybe one of the things that proves the point. Um, unless you have a three-dimensional image, you can't really see this thing because the point of it, actually, is that it has three faces. So you have two faces you see here, and it has another face on the other side. So it's a, it's a three-faced head. From a place called Corlec in, in County Cavan, it's probably roughly from the time of Christ. You know, Jesus may well be alive at the time that this is, this is made. Uh, possibly a little bit later, it's hard to date stone exactly. But what's fascinating about it, I was, I was looking at this and it's very interesting in its abstraction again, you know, it's, it doesn't have a sense of, it's not realistic. It's not representing a person, it's representing something else. Uh, even though it's a human head. And um, I, I was looking at, when I was researching this, uh, there's a great book by um, a woman called Maureen McNeil, uh, who's one of the great kind of Irish folklorists, and she did a kind of classic book called The Festival of Lunasa. I don't, has anybody seen Brian Friel's play, The Dancing of Lunasa? You know, it's, it's still in our culture somewhere, you know, that idea of the Lunasa Festival. Uh, and First of all, she mentions in, in the book that one of the places where the Lunasa Festival was carried on right up until the late 19th century um, was Corlec, which is the hill where this comes from. And then she says, uh, and this kind of sends a few chills up my spine, she says, there was a custom of bringing a stone head from a nearby sanctuary and placing it on the top of the hill for the duration of the festival. The head looking in different directions, maybe looking propitiously on the opening corn plots. Right? So the head is looking down on the corn that's ripening. And of course, the Lewis Festival is obviously a harvest festival in, in, in that sense. So probably this, this may well have represented in order for the god Lu, the young god, to reign over the, the three days of the festival, the threes are very important, the three, the three bases, the three days of the festival, Lu reigns over, but the old god has to be killed, symbolically, and his head placed on the hill. Uh, but he's sort of re relatively benign in that he's looking down on the corn, and looking down on the... the, the the regeneration of the community, I suppose, which is, which is part of, of, uh, of Lunasa. But again, what, a, what an object like this tells you is, is suddenly, if you think that these, this festival was part of our culture for the best part of 2,000 years, you know, well, we don't know when it started, but we do know that it still existed in the place where this comes from right up to not much more than a century ago. Um, some of our grandparents were alive 
in Christian Ireland, when this free Christian festival, of which this is part, uh, was still a vibrant and living part of the culture. And so um, you can find something here which, is, which is, uh, tells us something about objects as well, which is that they can point us towards an extraordinary continuity. You know, that actually some stuff survives. It may survive underground, it may survive unofficially, but it survives in the culture in extraordinary ways. Um, with with uh, this, of course, there's also the added poignancy. Um, it's often explained in terms of the Christian story, you know, that St. Patrick comes and has to explain to the pagans the idea of three persons in one God. Well, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> there's, there's three persons in one God here. Maybe one of the reasons why Christianity was perfectly understandable of the idea of a, a three-person God was, was not that foreign, was that it already existed in the culture. So maybe there's more continuity between pagan Ireland and Christian Ireland than the official story might tell you. Um, I, the next thing I suppose is, well this is, I'm sure you all recognize it, um, is the Book of Kells. Uh, we've, we've, we're skipping about 700 years. Uh, perhaps the most extraordinary object ever created in Ireland. Um, certainly one of the world's great works of art. Um, you know, we, we tend to overstate the importance of Ireland a lot, but in relation to Book Kells, I think we're not doing that. I mean, it is an absolutely breathtaking object. Um, and it, it tells us so many things where we can't even begin to talk about them, but, but let's just say two things it tells us. Um, one is the extraordinary absorbative capacity of, of Irish culture, you know, that uh, Christianity has been absorbed to an extent that by this time Ireland is producing one of the great works of Christian art uh, that the world has ever seen. And uh, but the other thing it's telling us is that it's making it in its own way. Um, so I said that abstraction is, is one of the things that's characteristic of Irish culture. Uh, the other thing that's characteristic of Irish culture is that it's not that it's pure in any sense at all. You know, uh, there's a way of looking at Irish culture which says, you know, there was, there was an Irish culture once and then it's been diluted or transformed by all these influences. Um, looking at all of this stuff for this project, one of the things you realize is that actually there never was a time when there was an uninfluenced Irish culture. You know, it, it's, everything has come from the outside, everything is being transformed by having to live in Irish conditions, everything is being transformed simply by virtue of the fact that this is a different place. And the people in this place have their own needs and they, they create, but they don't create out of nothing, they create by continually adapting and readapting and changing the stuff that's coming in from the outside. And perhaps this is the most magnificent example of that. Um, and I think this object, um, not to overstate it, is something that can give us, in a time of trouble like we're in now, a certain kind of courage. You know, really, what are we trying to face now as a people? What are we trying to deal with? We're trying to deal with the extraordinary difficulty of adapting to a very, very potent kind of globalization. You know, we're not too sure where we fit in all of this and how we can manage it. The Book of Kells is a great 
great example of globalization. You know, it's a, it's a global object. Um, it's an object which is Christian, it's an object which is using imagery, which has been imported. Uh, it's an object which has been using techniques, which have been imported. And yet it's making them new, it's making them in a different way. It's coping with those influences and reshaping them according to an Irish imagination. Uh, and I think therefore, again, an object like this um, doesn't just tell us something, it might actually give us a certain kind of courage about the capacity of the Irish imagination. Uh, when they published the first facsimile edition of the Book of Kells in the 1930s, um, James Joyce bought 20 copies um, and gave them to all his friends and was completely obsessed with it. And, and not for no reason, you know, I think it's because he saw a huge continuity between what he was trying to do with language and what the monks who made this thing were trying to do with visual imagery. Uh, that kind of convolution, that kind of abstraction, that kind of playfulness is very deep in, in Irish culture. If we have an Irish culture, this is what it is. This is a, one of my favorite things. Um, one of the weird things about uh, Irish culture, we saw the Book of Kells, all that abstraction and all that kind of convolution. One of the things you very seldom find in, in Irish culture at this time is the stuff that you expect to find. You know, where are the crucifixes? You know, where, where are the images of Jesus dying on the cross? There's not very many of them, actually. And this is, you look at it and you think, oh, well, there must be lots of these. Actually, this is very, very rare in, 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 in Ireland. Um, this is from a place called Rinnegan, it's the, the Rinnegan Crucifixion Plaque. Um, it's, it's not in itself a, a particularly remarkable piece of art. I mean, the, the image here is completely standard European Christian image, right? It's Jesus on the cross, the two Roman soldiers uh, at the foot of the cross, the one who's piercing his side with the lance, and the other one who, who gives him the sponge with vinegar, and the angels uh, who are going to take his soul to, to heaven. Uh, you know, it's a pretty standard image, except that in one way it's not standard at all, right? Um, it's a great example of this, what I think is the typically Irish thing, of, of taking an image that's universal and shaping it in, our, in Irish ways. There are two completely Irish things about this. Um, they, basically what they do is they decide that Jesus is Irish, you know? Um, so if you look at Jesus' face here, it's very like the head that we just saw the corner of the head. You know, it's, it's just a real continuity here. And then if, I don't know if people at the back can see this properly, but Jesus' breast, all around his breast here, what do you see? You see the spirals, you know, these trifoliate spirals, which are completely continuous with pre-Christian Ireland, you know. So the representation of, if it's meant to represent possibly Jesus' soul, the representation of that is completely pre-Christian Irish. Uh, and the way in which they interpret this classic, standard, universal image of the crucifixion uh, is entirely distinctive. So you get this kind of balance between the universal and, and the local. Um, moving on, I sort of show two images together, really. Um, one of the, again, one of the great things that objects show us is that sometimes if you put two of them together, so they also can be juxtaposed in museums. One of the great things about museums is you don't see a thing on its own, you see it with lots of other stuff. And if you juxtapose images, um, they tell a different kind of story. Um, I don't know how many of you, uh, well, probably everybody, everybody, you know, Watford is a Viking town, and you probably know a lot about, about, about Viking settlement. 
But the story certainly I learned at school was that um, the Vikings came, they were horrible, and they, they did all sorts of dreadful things, which they did, by the way. There's been a kind of romanticization of Vikings a little bit, I think, in recent past, saying, well, they were great traders and they were great craftspeople, which is also true, and they founded Water and they founded Dublin, which they founded first, we won't argue about. But, um, but you know, there was also extraordinary shock of violence. Um, slavery, for example, Dublin was one of the major slave ports of Europe in this time. Um, one of the objects in, in the book is a slave chain, a Viking slave chain, just to remind people you know, that slavery was, was, was a big part of Irish society. Um, but the Vikings were also um, extraordinarily skilled uh, craftspeople. But the idea that we, the story we were told was, you know, Brian Boru defeated the Vikings at the, the, the Battle of Clontarf in 1014 and fecked them out of Ireland, you know, and, and we were happy again as Irish people. Um, and this was also seen as a kind of triumph of Christianity over paganism, you know, as, as part of the story. Um, this is a piece of Viking um, woodwork from Dublin. Very beautiful, it's just a kind of a well, it's, an, it's the end of something probably, so maybe of a larger object, but you can see the beautiful carving in it. It's in a style called Rinka Rika, which was a kind of Scandinavian style. Uh, and it shows you just how, how skilled these people were. Um, this is the Clonmac Noise Crozier, one of the great works of Christian, Irish Christian, Gaelic Christian art of, of this period, probably from after the Battle of Clontarf. Uh, this is commissioned by one of the great Irish Christian monasteries, and look at it, I mean, you know, you don't have to be particularly expert to see that there's an enormous influence uh, of the Viking Rinkerica style on the Clan McNoise Crozier. Uh, almost certainly there was Viking craftspeople involved in the making of this, and almost certainly they were commissioned by one of the great Gaelic Christian monasteries. So, again, if you put the two objects together, they tell you a much more complicated story than simply the, the big narrative of the fact that uh, Brian Maru got rid of the Vikings. They actually tell you that the Vikings were absorbed into the culture uh, and that Viking influence was actually welcomed and, and was used and, and absorbed and, and adapted to the continuity of Irish Christian culture. Uh, you know, this, this is... Um, the first great Waterford objects, uh, the Charter Roll, which, which of course you can see here and is, is a magnificent object. Um, I'm not going to uh, dare to tell anybody in Waterford anything about this, and you know, you know much more about it than I do. I just want to say one thing about it though, which, which again is, is why the real objects matter. And one of the great things about objects is that they can re-emerge. Um, in our uh, digital world, which is fantastic in all sorts of ways. One of the things that doesn't happen is objects don't disappear and come back. <laughs> and there's something extraordinarily moving and meaningful about the way in which cultures discover and rediscover certain objects. Uh, and I would suggest that uh, both the Waterford objects that we're going to see give us some sense of that. It, with the the charter roll, you know, it's, it's an object which was disregarded for a long time. Um, and probably disregarded until really very recently. I mean, really, you know, you're only talking about recent decades in which the importance of this object has been understood. And why would that be? Well, it's probably because this is a sort of object with which 
mainstream Irish culture felt rather uncomfortable. Uh, why would that be? Because this is uh, undoubtedly a really important Irish object. Uh, it's, it's Irish made, it's part of Irish history, but it's part of Irish history in an English context. I mean, this, this object is, was made to, you know, to take to London, to appeal to the king in, in Waterford's great civil war with, with, with New Ross, um, the, the primary primacy of Waterford as, as, uh, as the great shipping port. And the images that you see in the charter roll uh, are local images, they're images of the, uh, the local administration in Waterford, they're also images of English monarchy. And uh, it, it seems to me that there's something about the presence of this particular object uh, that we would have felt very uncomfortable about, and we, I mean, I suppose the sort of mainstream Irish nationalist culture would have felt very uncomfortable about, up to relatively recent times. Um, and only very recently have we been able to acknowledge an object like this as a crucial part of Irish history. Uh, you know, that there's a simple reality, which is that urban culture, which this represents very, very potently, is an important culture in Ireland. You know, the Vikings and the Normans basically created urban culture in Ireland. And this is a great object of urban culture. Uh, but the fact that we can reinterpret or repossess an object, I think, is one of the things that distinguishes it from its digital image. And again, the same is true of, of the fabulous um, set of, of, of vestments um, that you have here. Uh, again, these are objects which disappeared for quite a long time. They were hidden away uh, in the face of, of the Cromwellian onslaught in Waterford and, and rediscovered hundreds of years later. And, and then were probably held in the National Museum in, in Dublin in conditions that weren't particularly great and they weren't particularly valued and, and, and then brought back to Waterford and their significance fully understood. So objects themselves have those kinds of histories. You know, they, they, they move, they, they disappear, they come back. The other thing that this, this fabulous collection of investments tells us is sometimes an object can point not just to what is, but to what is not. Um, one of the things that's really remarkable about these objects is, apart from their stunning beauty, I mean, they are really fantastic things to see, but they do get you thinking about why are these so rare in Ireland? Um, well, they're, I would suggest maybe one of the reasons they're so rare is that they are typical Renaissance objects, one of the great periods of human history, the European Renaissance, um, you know, from, in which in some ways we're still living. Uh, and you think, and you look at these objects and you think, these objects are Renaissance objects, but they could not have been made in Ireland, because Ireland was marginal to the Renaissance at that time. Uh, so the cloth here, you know, comes from Florence, perhaps, uh, the great kind of Renaissance capitals, and a huge amount of the artwork probably comes from, from Bruges. Um, you couldn't imagine in this period these things being made here. Uh, and that tells us something about the fact that for those long periods, Irish culture uh, actually, you know, we, we, we've stressed the ways in which it's kind of connected with Europe, and of course it's connected. This is a story of connection. Couldn't have ended up here if it wasn't connected. This was commissioned, obviously, from Waterford. It was put in, it was brought here, it meant a lot here, it was preserved here. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that it couldn't have been made here tells you something about the fact that, uh, that Ireland was also at an angle to, to Europe for, for a lot of this period. Um, the, 
just continuing this thought, um, objects also sometimes tell you something about um, what didn't happen, uh, as well as what did. You know, we, we tend to think of history as being only formed by the events, and this in a way is one of the great non-events of Irish history, which is the Spanish Armada. Um, this was um, rescued from the wreck of a big Spanish galleon called the Girona uh, off the North Antrim coast that sunk in 1588, when the Spanish Armada, of course, was scattered and you know, tried to get back to Spain by going around the Irish coast and was hit by, by appalling storms. Um, and again, it's an object of, of globalization. Uh, we think globalization is new, it's not that new. The, the gold here almost certainly comes from Latin America, of course, the Spanish Empire. Um, the rubies probably come from South Asia that are in it. Um, it's made into a salamander, it was a pendant that was obviously worn by an officer. Um, why the salamander mythologically uh, was resistant to fire? And this is a very moving object. This is an object from a dead man, a man who, who drowned. <laughs> and his mother, I, always, I, I don't want to be too sentimental, but you can imagine his mother giving and pinning his pendant on him before he goes sailing. Because of course the big fear of those wooden ships was fire, you know, that you were going to get burned to death. Um, and the salamander was a token, a, a, a token of protection against fire. Uh, and the poor man, whoever he was, almost certainly drowned. But of course, again, this opens up a sort of imaginative space. I mean, what if the Armada had succeeded? Um, would Irish history be fundamentally different? Um, would we be speaking Spanish? Uh, who knows? Um, but a very, very poignant object. Um, I, I deliberately put this in. A lot of people kind of raised their eyebrows when I put this into the 100 objects and said, well, what's this got to do with Ireland? You know, it's, again, some of you, I think, are probably of an age where you remember the cowboy movies. This is the sort of thing you see surrounded by pooping Indians and usually drawn up in a circle uh, with people shooting out. Um, it's the Conestoga wagon. Uh, these were made in vast quantities, uh, but it's the typical mode of transport of, of people moving west. Um, but this is a big part of Irish history. So again, one of these objects tells you is that Irish history doesn't always happen in Ireland. Uh, the Western expansion of America has a huge impact on everything about Ireland, really. Uh, in the 18th century, about 200,000 Presbyterians left Ulster to go to America. And the typical settler whom you, you see in these wagons is an Ulster Presbyterian, you know, who's, who's carving out territory beyond the accepted boundaries in, 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 in the West, often killing Indians, often displacing other people. Um, but this has a huge effect on American history, because it also has a huge effect on Irish history. The demographic balance of Ireland is really fundamentally affected by this. You know, the, the fact that we take for granted that there is a Catholic majority in Ireland, um, for example, um, has a lot to do with very large-scale Ulster emigration in, in, in that period. Um, again, this is one of the ones I just threw in um, to, to celebrate museums. Um, Again, one of the things that objects tell us sometimes is that they might strike somebody and not other people. Um, this is a really neglected sort of object. Um, even now, it's, it's in the, um, the Collins Barracks part of the National Museum in, in Dublin, but I don't think a lot of people actually look at it much because it doesn't have much context. It's, you know, what's a Buddha doing with all this other stuff? 
Um, and it sort of tells us two things. One is that actually the Irish were, were um, imperialists as well as victims of imperialism. Um, this was given to the Irish National Museum by a guy called Fitzgerald, who was a uh, British Army commander uh, who commanded a punitive raid into Burma um, as part of the uh, expansion of the British Empire um, from India. Um, they looted vast amounts of treasures from Burma. This is one of them, this very beautiful Buddha. Uh, was brought back and given to the Irish National Museum as a, as a trophy. But th the reason I, I wanted to include this is this thing about memory, that museums spark memories. Um, so this would not be something that most people who go to the National Museum would remember. But we know one person remembered this really vividly. Uh, it was James Joyce. Th this particular piece comes into Ulysses twice. Um, it's mentioned by Leopold Bloom when he's thinking, he's walking along, he's thinking, thinks about the statue. Um, and then, very movingly, it's, it's remembered by Molly Bloom, his wife, his unfaithful wife who's been sleeping with somebody else during the day and they have a difficult relationship and they're not particularly um, happy. Uh, and he's come home drunk uh, with this other Bowsy, Stephen Dedalus, and, and he gets into bed and he lies in bed the wrong way round, with his feet sticking up into her face. And what does she think of? She thinks of this statue. With the Buddha lying in the bed, and the big, huge, you see the feet are outsized. You know? So Joyce's image of this is actually really, really vivid. And he says, she says, you know, it reminds me of that, she says, Chinese saint who brought me to see in the museum. And it actually suddenly turns into a lovely moment because she remembers this time when they were courting. And he brought her to the museum. She's bored out of her mind by this sort of autodidact who's showing her stuff, but there's an affection there. And actually it also becomes a really beautiful image because uh, it refers to something that goes back to Joyce had obviously read about the Buddha himself. So, the Buddha, um, in the story of the Buddha, he, he goes off seeking enlightenment He's a prince, and he goes off, goes away, and he comes back, and he's abandoned his wife, and he comes back, and there's great joy, and his family does a big feast, and they're all delighted to see him, and his wife won't come down from upstairs to see him, because she's still angry with him for going away and abandoning her. And so he, of course, in the narrative, you know, it's such a, an honor for a man to go up to his wife, you know, was it her house to come down to him. So in his humility, he goes up to, he's so humble, he goes up to meet his wife, and she greets him and she's uh, sitting down and actually he's sitting down and she comes over and she puts his feet on her, on, on her face like that. And she sort of cuddles his feet. So that image suddenly in Ulysses of Molly Bloom and the husband's feet in her face is suddenly turned from this sort of awful image of this drunken bowsing with his feet sticking up his face into this actually rather beautiful image of kind of reconciliation. And all that comes, all that beautiful literature comes from Joyce having seen this in the museum. Uh, and remembering it in Paris 20 years later, in great detail, and, and shaping his story around it. And I don't think he would have remembered it in that way if we'd just seen a digital image. Um, nearly at the end, you'll be glad to know, um, this is, this is Eileen Gray, one of the great Irish artists who I think we're only really beginning to appreciate. Um, the official stories always mean there were two great Irish modernists who were you know, creators of European modernism, James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. 
women always get left out of this, and there was a third great Irish modernist who is, is Eileen Gray, one of the absolute inventors of European modernism in visual terms, in terms of housing, furniture, physical objects, um, absolutely wonderful figure from, from Enniscorthy, not that far from here. And this is her uh, chair from the 1930s. And it's called a non-conformist chair. Um, it was very touching. Uh, Eamon was showing me some of the, the chairs at the museum for uh, ships, captains, were they? Shipwrights, shipwrights chair, where you, you sat sideways in the chair to smoke your pipe. And um, all the men, all the great modernist men at this time were making very geometric objects. All the great Europeans, the French and the Germans. Very beautiful, but very geometric, very shaped, you know, very functional. That was the whole principle of them. And Eileen Gray was a woman, and she was also Irish, and she made something personal and organic, and that just sort of takes that European idea and makes it a bit different. And the idea of this chair is she said, well, actually, nobody really wants to sit like that. You know, what's the way you want to sit? You want to sit like that. <laughs> and she shaped it around her own body. So she, she made this very, very beautiful chair out of her own body and out of the way she likes to sit. And of course, the way most of us like to sit. And, the, the guy who, who um, mass produced these chairs ultimately said, you know, the great thing about this chair was that it says, you know, most people don't want to sit like emperors. And it's, it's, it's true of it. But I, I would suggest, and maybe this is slightly outrageous, but I would suggest that there's a kind of continuity of the attitude in this sort of beautiful, organic abstraction between this and, say, something like the Book of Kells, and then go back even to something like the Glenetian Gorge. At the, that, that sort of idea of shapes, which is very much in, the, in Irish culture and in the Irish mind, I think also comes out in this. Um, and, and again, you know, this is, she's a contemporary of Joyce. You know, Joyce is also thinking about the Book of Kells, that she's thinking about the Book of Kells. This stuff is, is still there. Uh, and so again, I suppose one of the things, that the last, second last thing I want to say is that objects inspire. You know, real objects actually make other artists do things and think in certain original ways, which they might not otherwise. And the last object is, um, uh, I think, one of the great examples of what I've been talking about, which is Irish adaptation of universal forms. Right? This is one of the most common and terrible objects of the 20th century. It's the AK-47 um, semi-automatic rifle. A brilliant piece of engineering, a very efficient piece of killing machine developed by Kalashnikov in, in, in Russia. Very simple to make, uh, mass produced. Millions and millions and millions of these things have been produced and, and made and fired and you know, probably many, many hundreds of thousands of people have been killed with AK-47s. Uh, and uh, so this is one that ended up in Ireland. If we take, remember where we started, we started with an object coming a long way. This is a Russian gun that ends up in Ireland, uh, AK-47, um, owned by the IRA. But it's also uh, an Irish, it's an international object which ends up being adapted to Irish purposes. Uh, in the end, this was decommissioned. This is a decommissioned AK-47. Uh, it's been decommissioned so that it can't fire. It's in the collection of the National Museum now. Uh, one of the very few that we have. Uh, and I wanted to finish with it because in a way it's a sort of grim, awful object that reminds us that actually objects can be used in all sorts of terrible ways. 
But it also reminds us that there is a human capacity to adapt objects to the times, to the needs of communities, to take them from being destructive to making them into symbols of something a lot more hopeful. The decommissioning of these weapons was actually an incredibly creative use of objects. And again, I don't want to exaggerate this, but it does suggest, um, first of all, the refusal to hand up the guns showed a society which actually has a very strong sense of the symbolism around objects, but the compromise of taking those objects and changing them by decommissioning, decommissioning them also suggests a culture that has a capacity to, uh, to change the meaning of an object uh, when it wishes to do so. And this just brings me to my final point in a way, which is why our museums, why our National Library, why our National Archives uh, matter enormously to us. In a way, if you look at what was going on here, the, the peace process, um, what was that process? Well, partly it was a process of the present catching up with the past. The conflict in Northern Ireland was an extreme expression of competing and narrow views of what the past meant of who owned the past, and which bits of the past did people own. And you had two mutually incomprehensible and incompatible narratives of the past, which undoubtedly fed into a really pretty destructive present. Actually, it had huge effects on, on the present, and, and very unpleasant ones. And equally, the peace process itself, the ending of that conflict, I think at some level, was a function of the way in which, over a long period of time, many of our national institutions have been opening up the past, have been actually saying, well, hold on, when you look in detail, the past is complicated. One of the great, great reasons why museums need to exist is that when you look at any actual object, it doesn't tell you one story. It doesn't fit into a neat, defined, linear narrative. It's always complicated, it's always contradictory, it's always ambiguous, it's always open. And the power of the past can either be used destructively as in an undecommissioned version of this uh, in a way that is literally fatal, or it can be used to open up the idea that actually there are other narratives. And once you begin to accept that there are other narratives, then you have to accept that you've got to create some kind of synthesis which allows space for those different narratives to come into a new kind of relationship with each other, um, which allows us perhaps uh, to stop thinking about what we want to die for and start thinking about what we can live with, which is really what the peace process did. Um, so I'm not saying that museums brought peace to Ireland, but I am saying that the slow, careful, scholarly work of thinking about the past uh, that museums have been very much part of has undoubtedly been a serious contributing factor towards getting us to a situation in Ireland when we've decommissioned some of the toxic elements of our own past uh, and have perhaps got to a point where we can look at all sorts of things and think, you know, that's us as well. Uh, and that that us is a rather capacious, open-ended, ambiguous thing, uh, which it can be extremely exciting to explore, not least in our wonderful museums. Thank you very much.